Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of assaults, multiple rapes, murder, and sexual violence against children that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Shakespeare once wrote, Some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. That statement has transcended time and space, culture and creed. It is as true today as it was in Shakespeare's time. And sometimes, a person comes along who seems to embody all three types of greatness. Fulan Devi, the bandit queen of India, lived as an outlaw for four years in the northern Indian states of Uttar Pradesh and Madhya Pradesh during the late 1970s and early 1980s. Fulan's radical violence against the ruling classes in India shocked the nation and turned her into a warrior for the lower classes, even after her assassination. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture any women? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes, But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals. Today, we'll take a deep dive into the life of Fulan Devi, India's infamous bandit queen. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them and all of ParCast's shows on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Many of you have asked how to help the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review. Famous for leading the revenge massacre of 22 villagers in 1981, Fulan Devi eventually captured India's imagination and won a coveted spot in parliament. She also became a symbol of all that is possible for the lower castes in India, good and bad, as well as a divisive figure in India's protracted and ongoing war on women. In this episode, we'll explore Fulan's childhood and the brutal, stigmatizing violence she suffered— We'll examine all factors that paved the way for her to become India's bandit queen. And in part two, we'll take a look at Fulan's life after her surrender, including her election to Indian parliament and her eventual assassination. Fulan Devi was born on August 10, 1963. Her village of Gora Kapurwa in the northern India state of Uttar Pradesh suffered the same fate as many American small towns, It was the entire universe for those who lived and died there, consumed by social politics and gossip. But unlike in American small towns, it was nearly impossible to break out of this. Fulan was born into a Hindu community, 
which dictated her life. In Hinduism, people are categorized by a 2,500-year-old caste system based on good works or sin across multiple lifetimes. There are four primary castes and one non-caste. From top to bottom, we get the Brahmins, the teachers and priests, Kshatriyas, warriors and political leaders, Vaishyas, the merchants, and Shudras, the laborers. At the very bottom of the scale, so low they're not even recognized as a caste, we find the Dalits, the untouchables. And within those larger castes, there are even more delineations, mostly involving the occupations those subcastes can have. The caste system is an incredibly complex social system that decides almost every aspect of the life of Hindus across the subcontinent, from what they can wear to what they can eat, even whether they're allowed to talk to someone of another caste. It dictates whether they can enter a temple to pray, and whether they're allowed to carry an umbrella when it rains. Fulan was a member of the Mala caste, a lower caste of boatmen and fishermen. Broadly, this put her in the Shudra caste. Her social and religious destiny was to produce sons and earn a few cents a day toiling in the village she would never leave. Illiteracy condemned her to a powerless future. Indian censuses have shown that even today, nearly 60 years after Fulandevi was born, four out of every 10 female children in Uttar Pradesh will never learn to read or write. Worse still, Fulan had been born to a father who she described as a simpleton. He lost much of his family's land when Fulan was just a little girl. Fulan's father had allowed his smarter and more politically connected older brother to take control of the land that was rightfully his, and as such was condemned to support his family by sharecropping his own property. This level of poverty and lack of resources was ubiquitous in Fulan's small village, as well as in her caste. And we can see the impact of this type of upbringing across all cultures— we're about to get into some psychology here, so just a quick disclaimer. Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Sammy. Studies at Princeton University have shown that children who grow up in low-income environments, regardless of where they are in the world, are predisposed to be less trusting and don't attempt to fit in socially. They're more at risk for criminal behavior, and they're more likely to have low self-esteem. Fulan was born on a slippery slope that routinely feeds 70% of Indian women into a life of obscurity. These women are born, marry, and work themselves to death in the same village. And yet, Fulan blossomed early as a precocious, resilient child. In 1973, when Fulan was only 10 years old, she decided to wage a private war against her uncle and cousin, who she believed had stolen her father's land. But she quickly realized that she could not go after her uncle without provoking retaliation against her own family. So instead, she began a psychological and social assault on her older cousin, Maya Din. By all accounts, Maya Din was a brutish bully. Because his father had stolen Fulan's father's land, Maya Din lived at a level of social and financial luxury that few in the Mala caste could afford. He had upper caste friends and education, and a claim to the remaining piece of Fulan's father's land, if he chose to take it. In 1973, Maya Din told Fulan's father to cut down the neem tree on the single acre of land that Fulan's father still owned, in order to begin growing additional crops to sell. 
Whether the neem tree was a hindrance to this or not is unclear, but what we do know is that Fulan's father agreed without much protest. Instead, Fulan did the protesting for him. The neem tree produced fruits for the family to sell. By cutting it down, not only would they lose that income and food, but Fulan believed her father would be giving her cousin Maya Din authority over the little remaining land Fulan's father had. Ten-year-old Fulan began taunting Mayadin in front of his upper-caste friends. She called him a thief in front of the village and used words no other Indian woman would have dared to use, profanities that had trickled down from modern cities and found their way into the mouth of an unflappable village girl. Sister Screwer seemed to be one of her favorites. Day after day, week after week, her barrage of cusses and character assassinations grew louder and harder to ignore until the day Maya Din came to cut down the neem tree himself. Under the tree, Fulan had gathered several village girls and her older sister. They surrounded it, guarding the tree with their bodies. Maya Din ripped Fulan away and, according to Fulan's later accounts, beat her unconscious with a brick. No one stepped in to stop him. When Fulan awoke, the neem tree was gone. If the village believed the beating would cow Fulan, they were mistaken. In fact, it only seemed to incense her more. Fulan continued calling Maya Din a thief for months afterwards, until Maya Din decided to silence 11-year-old Fulan once and for all. In 1974, Maya Din convinced Fulan's father to marry her off to a man three times her age in exchange for a cow and a bicycle. Child brides were and still are very common in India. UNICEF estimates that 27% of girls in India today are married before they reach the age of 18. However, in the 1970s, this figure was higher than 50%, and a sizable portion of those were children under the age of 15. In India, female children are often seen as a financial burden for their families, due in part to marriage dowries that are integral to arranged marriage negotiations. Dowries are money, goods, services, and property that are given to the groom and his family at the time of marriage. For lower caste and poor families, the burden can be so great that having a daughter is a debt they may never be able to escape. This has led to an increase in female infanticide, as well as dowry deaths, which are, quote, deaths of women who are murdered or driven to suicide by continuous harassment and torture by husbands and in-laws in an effort to extort an increased dowry. End quote. There's also been an increase in marrying daughters off at very young ages to avoid these costs. The Associated Press reports. There have been a lot of murders. Last year, according to government statistics, which are fairly uh, poor, even by those records, it's something like 7,000 women uh, were killed by in-laws last year for not bringing adequate dowry. The usual practice is to uh, douse them, to pour kerosene over them and set them on fire. They set them on fire. And the fate for those who live isn't much better. Anti-human trafficking organizations such as Justice and Care have found that when these marriages to young children fail, the girls are often then sold into slavery, either by dissatisfied husbands or by their families when they try to go home. Thankfully, as of 2012, the Indian government was working to prevent these crimes. From another AP report. Many people are talking about 
how women are treated across all of society. Many girl children are aborted in sex-selective abortions. There's also female infanticide, and the sex ratio is wildly skewed toward men in the country. All of that is considered part of the problem that leads up to violence against women. But for Fool and Devi in 1974, there was no recourse. 11-year-old Fool and Devi was raped by her husband and beaten routinely throughout the tenure of her brief, tumultuous marriage. By her own account, in 1975, shortly after she turned 12, Fulan ran away. Alone and scared, she crossed an expanse of hard, arid land the width of Texas on foot to return to her family. Let's take a moment to share something we love at ParCast. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com Spotify. TommyJohn.com Spotify. See site for details. Now let's get back to the story. In 1975, 12-year-old Fulan Devi ran away from her abusive husband and walked approximately 800 miles to return to her village. However, when she arrived, she wasn't greeted with kindness, but with revulsion and fear. She had shamed her family by leaving her husband, something Indian women simply did not do. Her parents wouldn't even allow her to sleep in the house. Her mother told her the only way to reclaim her honor was to kill herself. Fulan's mother later told reporters, quote, I told her to jump in a well, jump in a well or drown herself in the Yamuna River, end quote. But Fulan couldn't or wouldn't bring herself to do that. Instead, she lived as a pariah in her own village for the next six years. Over these years, Fulan's reputation soured. Villagers she had known her entire life whispered amongst each other as they passed. The gossip was cruel and exacting. They whispered that she was sleeping with men in the village, though that could neither be confirmed nor debunked. They also called her unclean because she bathed naked in the river. India is a deeply conservative country where many people who have been married for decades have never seen their spouse in the nude. When they bathe, they often wear a pair of underwear akin to a swimsuit. But despite their cold treatment, Fulan seemed determined to get back in the good graces of the one she loved. She continued trying to regain her family's stolen land. As before, she cursed at her cousin Maya Din in public, trying to humiliate him around his upper-caste friends. To help her parents, she cut grass on her father's small tract of land. She also spent long stretches of her early teenage years nurturing her father's cow, the very cow he had sold her for. Research by the Dana Foundation has found that mistreated and abused children often try to outlove those who treat them the worst, especially when their abusers are family. In a way, children overcompensate for mistreatment. They try to make their abusers love them, and much of it has to do with the way the brain is wired to bond with caretakers. The brain chemistry of the amygdala, the part of the brain that regulates emotions, allows babies to bond with their mothers— The same mechanism and chemicals also prevent a child from understanding that they're being mistreated by their family. 
When children are with their parents, their biochemical response to pain and fear is turned off. Even if the child is being abused, this can cause children to protect their abusers and misinterpret that abuse as love, a pattern that leads them to seek out additional abuse or to do anything in their power to earn the affection of their abusers. In a cruel twist of fate, Fulan's return to her family had not only guaranteed additional mistreatment at the hands of those she loved, but also enslaved her to the need to atone for her own wrongdoing. The more her family and her village pulled away from her, the harder she clung to them. In 1978, at the age of 15, Fulan even took Mayadin to high court to challenge his claim to her father's land. During the trial, her fiery eyes and animated disposition were not that of a disgraced and weak young girl, but of a fighter. The court stenographer later told reporters that he saw a spark in her then, a will to live that superseded anything her family or village had done to her. She was fire incarnate. Unfortunately, the high court ruled in Maya Din's favor. Fulan's private war for her family's land continued for another year, until Maya Din had 15-year-old Fulan arrested for breaking and entering and theft on January 6, 1979, There's no way to know whether the claim of robbery was real. Fulan claimed the criminal charges were a lie. But as a result of Mayadin's accusation, Fulan was jailed. According to some sources, Fulan was in police custody for as long as a month, during which she was repeatedly beaten and raped by police officers who considered themselves friends of her cousin. Under this abuse, Fulan described herself devolving, later saying she was a, quote, whimpering piece of rubbish in the corner of a dirty room with rats staring her in the eye, end quote. Trauma has a way of affecting people and altering their behavior. For example, a man who's punched in a bar may choose not to return to that bar again. On a grander scale, however, trauma also has a way of affecting the more general patterns and routines in a person's life. The Center for Research and Treatment of Trauma at the Italian Red Cross has found that victims of trauma and violence, especially when they've experienced that trauma at the age of 11 or younger, as Fulan had been, are more likely to act out as they grow up and are more prone to antisocial and aggressive behavior. Within a span of five years, Fulan was raped by multiple members of her community, almost exclusively with the permission of her community. And when she returned home following that brutalizing event, she found no allies there. However, Fulan never wanted the crimes committed against her to erode the view people had of her. She once told a reporter, quote, Do you have any idea what it's like to live in a village in India? What you call rape. That kind of thing happens to poor women in the villages every day. It's assumed that the daughters of the poor are for the use of the rich. They assume that we're their property. End quote. Caste-based rape is a persistent problem even in modern India. India's National Crime Records Bureau states that at least four low-caste women are raped per day. But add the caveat that those are only the reported crimes. When women were privately polled by the National Campaign for Dalit Human Rights, over 23% of low-caste women admitted to having been raped at least once, if not more, during their life. If the rapist is of a higher caste, it's usually impossible to bring a trial against them. This was the case for Fulan. Her rapists wouldn't be prosecuted. After being released from jail, 
It was difficult for Fulin to return to the same routine she had occupied herself with since leaving her husband. Bad luck, or fate, seemed more than ready to turn her life in a new direction. The Festival of Sawandui, a month-long religious holiday that takes place before the monsoons begin to sweep across the Indian subcontinent each year, began on July 9, 1979. But it wasn't the start of the festival that had Fulan's village in a tizzy. News had disseminated through the village that a notorious gang of dacoits, or bandits, was encamped on a nearby riverbank. The gang's leader, Babu Gujar, was famous in Uttar Pradesh for his brutality and cruelty. Some accounts say that Fulan's family received a letter from the gang, threatening to kidnap her or cut off her nose as punishment for the indiscretions of which she had been accused. Others suggest her cousin Mayadin, or his father, paid the bandits to take her. And yet others claim she left the village of her own accord. Fulan said she agreed to let them kidnap her when the bandits threatened to take her brother instead. Either way, the end result was the same. In 1979, a group of men armed with assault rifles came after Fulan. Just after midnight, they took her from the village— she was forced deep into the labyrinthine ravines that trail across Uttar Pradesh like fine spiderwebs. The bandit leader, Babu Gujar, was as cruel as his reputation suggested. For three days, he raped and tortured her to prove his power over her. Rape has been used as a political tool since before the rule of Genghis Khan, and it is still used today to bend women, communities, and cultures into submission. Amnesty International has begun keeping records of sexual war crimes carried out across the world, from the Japanese comfort women of World War II to army and paramilitary groups in Colombia using sexual violence against rebels to allegations against the United States of sexual abuse against prisoners in Guantanamo Bay. It is a ubiquitous and horrible human rights violation that happens almost everywhere in the world— And though perpetrators often try to claim that the woman's sexuality or potential sexuality somehow led to their rape, sexual gratification is rarely the true reason rape is carried out. Reports by Doctors Without Borders and Amnesty International state that systematic rape is often used as part of the strategy of ethnic cleansing, allowing one ethnic group to redraw ethnic boundaries and exert social control over another. It's rarely about the woman— but instead about what she represents. Women take care of their communities. So to break down those communities, oppressors break their women. After torturing Fulan, Babu Gujar yanked her from man to man in the gang, asking who wanted a taste of the Sudra woman. You might recall that Sudra, or Shudra, is the name given to the laborer caste in India. As it had always been in her life, Fulan's caste dictated even how she could be treated when kidnapped by bandits. Hope of escape was useless. She was considered a ruined woman, after all. One who had lingered too long at the fringes of a society that had rejected her. There's no indication that anyone in Fulan's village tried to rescue her. And yet, she had grabbed the attention of an unlikely ally— On her fourth day with Babu Gujar, a man entered the tent where she was tied, put a gun to Gujar's head, and shot him dead as he slept. Gujar was killed by his second-in-command, a man named Vikram, who came from the same Mala boatman subcast as Fulan. Some believe that Vikram had admired Fulan for years, 
watching her from afar as he and Gujar's gang carried out crimes in the region around her village. Others simply believe he couldn't stand watching such a systematic humiliation of his caste. It wasn't the fact that Babu Gujar had repeatedly raped Fulan that had angered Vikram to kill him. It was that his leader had shown such disrespect to Vikram's caste. Basuli Deb, writer of the book Transnational Feminist Perspectives on Terror in Literature and Culture, notes that it's exactly this type of selective bias to protect his caste instead of caring about a victim's pain that allows violence against women to thrive even in the modern world. Yet, Vikram's murder of Gujar represented a dangerous and unprecedented step for bandits in India. In a single act, a low-caste man took control of an upper-caste gang. There were going to be severe consequences for Vikram's betrayal. After he killed Gujar, Vikram untied Fulan. He declared that Fulan would be his woman and remain unmolested by the rest of the gang, a paper-thin promise that gave Fulan two choices, become someone's sexual property and experience freedom in other areas of her life, or defy him and suffer for the rest of her short, painful existence. Fulan was no fool. She agreed to become Vikram's sexual partner. Years later, when she was asked if she voluntarily stayed with Vikram, she simply said that property never has a choice. In private, and to those she trusted, however, she said, quote, Vikram was the first man to treat me like a human being, not a slave or a piece of flesh, end quote. With Vikram, Fulan enjoyed a level of agency and freedom that she had never known. She, Vikram, and the gang ran wild through the ravines of the Chambal River Valley, an area of India routinely called India's Wild Wild West. Together with the gang, Fulan robbed upper-caste homes, carried out train heists, and eventually escalated to kidnapping and murder. At the tender age of 16, Fulan became the stuff of legends, a female bandit just under five feet tall who sang Bollywood songs while she cleaned her rifle. And she could use that rifle. From 30 paces away, Fulan could shoot the end off a lit cigarette dangling from a bandit's mouth. Across the Indian states of Uttar Pradesh and Madhya Pradesh, songwriters began writing romantic ballads about Fulan Devi, the low-caste bandit girl. And with that renown came something that had been lost to her when she had left her husband, a renewed sense of honor. Fulan exercised her newfound freedom in a number of ways. She cut her hair into a wavy bob that fell just above her shoulders, and she chose a patron Hindu goddess, Durga, a mighty and independent warrior goddess who rode a tiger and dispensed her own violence to right the wrongs she saw in the world. Fulan learned everything she could from Vikram's leadership of the gang. By all accounts, she treated her relationship with him like an apprenticeship, shadowing the business she would someday run. Vikram urged Fulan to cultivate herself in terms of myth and legacy, to become more than she had ever been before. He urged her to kill 20 people if she was going to kill one, believing that while the single murder would earn her only shame, the mass killing would take her beyond shame, past fame, and into immortality. He taught her the ways of hostage negotiation and highway robbery. In October 1979, Vikram, Fulan, and the gang attacked Fulan's husband's village. Fulan yanked her husband from the home she had shared with him and nearly gutted him with a knife. She threatened the rest of the village's men. 
promising that the gang would return if they discovered that any of the old men in the village had married young girls. Her husband survived the attack, but carried a scar running from his neck to his navel for the rest of his life. Fulan became Vikram's most trusted confidant and the gang's spiritual core. Before and after every heist, she led the gang to hidden temples to pray to Durga for protection. She also interpreted signs she believed were sent by the goddess to warn her of danger. Once, she claimed she'd been sitting by the fire when a snake crawled into her lap. Interpreting it as a warning, she and the gang broke camp and ran, only to watch from the shadows as police swarmed the empty camp a few minutes later. On August 13, 1980, 17-year-old Fulan experienced another dark premonition— she saw a crow perched on a long dead tree and urged the gang to run. This time, however, Vikram convinced her everything was fine and suffered terribly for it. That night, Fulan heard two shots ring out. She felt Vikram collapse against her as their bed began to fill with blood. Vikram was dead. His decision to kill the bandit leader, Babu Gujar, had finally come back to haunt him. In retaliation for that murder, Sri Ram and Lala Ram, former members of the gang who had been in prison when Gujar died, had come back seeking bloody revenge against the lower caste leader who had dared to kill an upper caste man. When she heard the Ram brothers enter the tent, Fulan reached for her rifle, but it wasn't by her side. As they bound and chloroformed her, Fulan once again found herself at the mercy of men with no mercy left to spare. Time for a message we want you to hear. Now, let's get back to the story. In 1980, 16-year-old Fulan Devi's freedom as a bandit came to a brutal and abrupt end when bandit leader Vikram Mala was killed in her arms. She was taken hostage by Sri Ram and Lala Ram. The Ram brothers carried her to the Yamuna River. They sailed to the village of Bimai, which was occupied by members bearing the Takur title, upper caste members of the second highest caste. The Ram brothers locked Fulan in a small hut and held her captive for three weeks. Shortly after midnight every evening, the men of the village would appear in groups to beat and rape her. Multiple witnesses attested to the fact that the assault was systematic. They said it was a decision by the village's men to punish and humiliate her, both because she had been the reason for Babu Gujar's death and because she was lower caste and had assumed a position of power. As he beat her, Sri Ram told her, quote, You thought you could bully us around and give us orders? You understand now who you belong to? You remember now why you were born? End quote. On the 23rd day of Fulan's captivity, Sri Ram and Lala Ram pulled her from the hut. She could barely walk. Her hair was matted and bloody, and her eyes were so dry she struggled to blink. The village women watched silently from their homes as the Ram brothers told Fulan to retrieve water for them from the well. When she refused, they beat her and stripped her naked, completing her humiliation. Remember, this was a place where people are never naked, not in public and not in private. As she fetched them water, they spat and laughed at her. After nightfall, Sri Ram and Lala Ram returned to the Chambal ravines to take control of Vikram's gang. While they were away, 
their village seemed to decide that Fulan had suffered enough. They turned a blind eye as a priest named Santosh Pandit, who had heard the rumors of Fulan's condition, walked into the hut where Fulan was kept. The priest spirited her away to his own village nearby. It took Fulan 17 months to recover from the assault. Details of her condition are difficult to come by. Even later in her life, Fulan was reticent to discuss her bejati, dishonor, as she called it. During this time, she befriended another bandit named Man Singh. Together, they gathered men willing to exact justice against the village of Bemai for any number of personal and social resentments they had against the people who lived there. They gathered men who would follow Fulan into hell. On February 14, 1981, 18-year-old Fulan dressed in the uniform shirt of a police deputy superintendent and blue jeans. A bandolier of bullets hung like a sash across her chest. She picked up a Sten gun and carried it over her shoulder. As she had done before every heist with Vikram's gang, she led her 20 men to a shrine in the village to pray. They asked Shiva, the god of destruction, for protection. Then they crossed the river that led to the village of Bimai, where Fulan had been tortured for three weeks. Silently, they surrounded the village. Fulan climbed onto the village well. She pressed a megaphone to her lips. Her voice was sharp and clear. She demanded the villagers hand over the Ram brothers, the men who had condemned her to unimaginable torture for three weeks the year before. She threatened brutal violence if the village refused. Unfortunately, no one had seen the brothers in months, and some claimed to have never met the brothers at all. Fulan called them liars. She had her bandits round up every young man in the village. One by one, they were marched out of their homes. The 30 village men walked single file to the river. There, they were forced to kneel before Fulan. She asked them again for the whereabouts of the bandits Sri Ram and Lala Ram. Again, they told her they hadn't seen them. Fulan went down the line and removed the men's turbans, the butt of her rifle occasionally making brutal, crushing contact with the crotches of the men as she passed. Then, as the women of the village who had remained so silent during her confinement all those months ago watched, Fulan's bandits opened fire on the village's men. In seconds, 22 were dead. The rest were badly wounded, playing dead to avoid another round of gunfire. Fulan had followed Vikram's vicious and exacting advice. Instead of killing two men, she had killed a village. Then, like boogeymen, she and her men had escaped into the ravines of the Chambal. Across India, news of the Bandit Queen and the St. Valentine's Day Massacre was cemented in the minds of a billion Indians, and Fulan's legend grew. The tiny, low-caste woman who had killed 22 high-caste men in a single afternoon and escaped with her freedom was not the imaginary heroine of a Bollywood epic. She was even better. She was real. Her revenge had been swift and sweet, and exactly the sort of thing a romantic outlaw might do. She'd achieved what so many in her situation longed for, and yet, studies by Colgate University, Harvard, and the University of Virginia have revealed that while the idea of revenge activates pleasure centers in our brains, the actual act of carrying out revenge only aggravates the resentment we feel. 
being able to punish others only makes us more aggressive and angrier about the unfairness we experienced. In another experiment, German psychological scientist Mario Golwitzer discovered that revenge was only satisfying for the victim when the attacker admitted wrongdoing. When the attacker expressed self-righteous indignation or indifference, the victim felt no satisfaction at all from seeking revenge. Fulin, however, seemed quite content with the carnage she doled out against her enemies. She once said, quote, Once I became a bandit and started making lists of all the people who had tortured me, who had abused me, and I was able to pay them back in kind, that pleased me tremendously. When they were brought before me and fell at my feet to pay obeisance to me, the fear of the gun is a powerful thing. I was the master and those who had once abused me now worshipped me. I was actually happy most of the time that I was a dacoit, end quote. However, she added that female bandits rarely become bandits willingly. Instead, they're driven to it as victims of atrocities, a sentiment echoed by many of the female bandit leaders still in power across the Indian subcontinent, most of whom were also kidnapped and raped before becoming the leaders of their own gangs. Even Indian police agree with Fulin's characterization of female bandits. They're formed in the crucible of caste prejudice, brutal sexism, and a corrupt justice system that does nothing to protect them. Though laws are in place to protect Indian women, without the willingness of police and politicians to actually enforce those laws, they're useless. These female bandits arise driven by a need for revenge, whether or not the actual revenge takes place or satisfies them. Perhaps the most interesting part of Fulin's 1981 St. Valentine's Day Massacre can be found in the makeup of the gang that helped her carry it out. Even though she had been raped by Takur men, ranked high in the Indian caste system in retaliation for the death of one of their own, many of the men who walked into Bimai with her were also Takur. She successfully convinced men to turn against their own caste. Fulin was an anomaly within her own culture, a victim turned to outlaw who grew so powerful that she eventually took on the caste system and lived to tell the tale. She was a force to be reckoned with, and her life was about to take one more incredible twist. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. Next week, we'll conclude our look into the legendary life of bandit queen Fulan Devi. How did a woman notorious for killing the men of an entire village rise in power to become a member of Indian parliament? And how did she pay the ultimate price for the life she led? You can find more Female Criminals and all of ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, Tune in or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Jordan Trippier and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.